Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. couple of things to have on hand. If you would have your Bible, turn to chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, and then also have marked or somehow, you know, where you can get to it really fast, Proverbs 31. We're going to do something fun. I'm going to show you some parallels between the blessings on the sons of Jacob, on the sons of Israel, and the, the matching blessings that you can find in Proverbs 31, and we always call her the Proverbs 31 woman. But there's some things to know about the book of Proverbs that that might modify exactly what we expect of women when when we compare them to what's in Proverbs 31. That might be a higher bar than, than a flesh and blood woman can actually aspire to. Right. So again, your toolkit for this lesson is going to be a Bible. You want to have it turned to chapter 33 of Deuteronomy. You want to be able to access Proverbs 31 quickly. And you might want to have a pencil. Pen's fine. I, I just I make a lot of mistakes, as you can see by the size of this eraser. And so when I make notes and things, uh, it helps me a little bit to have a pencil uh, instead of a pen. But sometimes a pen's easier to read. So personal preference there, just so you can take some notes. I think you'll. this will be one of these things where you don't want to just listen. You actually want to have something in your hand to take notes with. Okay. All right. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got your pencil, if you've got a sheet of paper or something to make some notes on, what we want to do is a little bit of review from, was it last week? Yeah, I guess it was last week, where we've been looking at the blessings of the tribe of Asher. The tribe of Asher, and I'm always looking, making sure Asher doesn't run in here when he hears his name. And here you want to say Asher, Asher, the tribe of Asher, because there's a, a special, of course, each tribe has its own special blessing. But there's a special aspect to the tribe of Asher that sometimes we miss if we're not using good Bible study tools. And of course, our, our Bible study tools uh, they fall under the heading of the big word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, and it sounds way more scary than it is. Hermeneutics is just tools that help you to study the Bible, help you to unpack what you're reading so that you don't get off on the wrong track. Yeshua used these rules. The apostles used these rules. The writers of the Old Testament, you can see them following these rules. And so if you just know a few of them, it can make you much more accurate when you're trying to figure things out, especially on your own. And you really shouldn't ever <laughs> believe that you can somehow figure out the whole Bible on your own. There's there's problems associated with that sort of mindset. And that the thing that we find out is the longer we study the Bible is the more difficult it is, the more we need scholars to give us other points of view, the more we need good rules of hermeneutics, the more we need to study our Hebrew. And that's the caution with Hebrew is, you know what, you study Hebrew a few years, and you're way more dangerous than when you didn't know a word of Hebrew. That's 
the oddity of it because you know just enough Hebrew to be dangerous. And that's even our way in the Torah. You know, your first three years in the Torah, you reach a point where, you know what, you'll, you can't ever know any more than you know right then. And if you can push on past about that three-year stage, that's when you realize, well, I don't know anything. You, you, you can go pretty fast from, gee, I must know everything there is to know about the Torah to, I don't know the first thing about the Torah. And the longer you study the Torah, the less you realize you know the Torah. So it's kind of the same way with Hebrew. You're way more dangerous with a little bit of Hebrew than you are with no Hebrew. Or, you know, if, if you continue, at least if if you know that you're out of your element in terms of biblical Hebrew, see, I'm way more proficient with modern Hebrew, uh, speaking Hebrew, talking to people in Hebrew than I am with biblical Hebrew. I only had two semesters of biblical Hebrew. Do they cross over? To an extent, they do. Just like Shakespearean English can be understood by someone who speaks modern English, it's just we have to work at it a little bit harder. Even the grammatical structure is a little bit different. The syntax is a little bit different, but you can figure it out. You're you're speaking the same language. Would a modern English speaker say understand Chaucer? Probably not. <laughs> there there is a breaking point, but fortunately, with modern and ancient Hebrew, the 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 points are pretty close together. If you can understand one, one you can understand the other. It's just a matter of resetting your, your syntax in a lot of cases. But uh, with the Hebrew, you know, like I say, it comes a big caution too, because Hebrew is such a multi-purpose language. There can be so many meanings to a Hebrew word. And ultimately, you have to know the context. If you don't know the context, you don't really know which meaning of that word is being used in that particular case. But if we apply these rules, like the rule of first mention, the rule of progressive mention, the rule of complete mention, if we pay attention to something Yeshua loved to use, which is uh, is called kal v'chomer in Hebrew, it means light and heavy. If this is true, then how much more would this be true? It's taking this example and then applying that same template to this example, which would have a heavier weight to it. And for him, it was a, often Yeshua's arguments often fell into, I don't want to call them a gray zone because it's really black and white when it comes to obedience or disobedience. But when it comes down to doctrine, sometimes how we apply those doctrines, we may both agree that we should be doing that thing or we should not be doing that thing. But it's in these gray areas where I see it this way and you see it that way. Even though we both agree that the Bible is true 100%, we should be doing or not doing. It's how we derive the the practical practice, right? Orthopraxis is what it's called. If we want to use a big word, how do we actually practice this? We might have a wide variety. And the, the rabbis say that's probably one reason that the the people ask Moses, you go listen to what Adonai has to say, and then you come back and tell us. Because if he tells the whole nation, we're going to walk away from this mountain with millions of interpretations of Ten Commandments. Millions, because there were millions of them standing there. We'll walk away with millions of interpretations of what that means and how it's going to be applied practically. So Moses, you learn it. Then you come teach it to us and tell us how it's supposed to be applied. And, and that way we won't have the, the chaos reigning in the camp. 
And so with that understanding, this is what we're doing. We want to apply some rules here and say there is such a thing as progressive mention. And so if I read about something over here, if I find a similar situation over here, then I will have more understanding of this second situation based on what I've already read in the first situation. may not be identical, but the template is there. In the same way, there might be some things about the first example that I don't really understand, but now he gives me this second example and I can go back to the first one and now I can read that with much more clarity. And so comparing similar contexts, that's part of progressive mention. You just keep reading and you keep adding to your examples. And that's what we want to do today. We want to compare two sections of scripture that maybe, I don't know if anybody's ever done it before or not. This is out of one of the workbooks, by the way. So where did you get that? Well, this is out of um, Creation Gospel Workbook 5, Volume 5. Workbook 5, Volume 5, which of course will be over Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. And I believe it's in the last lesson. I'm not mistaken because this blessing is in the last Torah portion. So let's let's just give a little background before we start doing our exercise here. This is our text that we've been working with in our footsteps of Messiah. We know that the Song of Songs is prophecy, not just of the return of Messiah, but of the relationship between Israel and the Messiah. And so this section in Song of Songs, which is Shir Hashirim, uh, chapter 4, this is what we call the twins and pairs passage. There are so many twins and pairs that we've studied over the last several weeks, even months. And, and so our examples in here, it really drives you back to the pairs, the twins and the pairs of things. And one of the sections that we looked at had to do with similarities between Abraham and Sarah, how their blessings were almost identical. I gave you some other things, for instance, uh, a comment that David makes comparing his army, those in his army who went to the front and ultimately defeated the enemy in hand-to-hand combat, and then those who stayed back to protect what's called the baggage. Because with most armies, it's your baggage that makes up the bulk of what's happening, because you have to be able to supply those people on the front lines to resupply them medical care, all sorts of stuff. You need to protect your equipment in the back as it's being brought up, you know, as you don't have all your bullets on the front line, you can't carry them like that, but you need to protect those stores of ammunition and so forth. Same way in ancient times as it is today. So it's just as important to protect what's there for resupply or protection as it is to be on the front line. Because If you lose the baggage or if you lose the supply area, then there's no way to supply the front lines. And so when some of the soldiers on the front lines complained that David was going to divvy up everything after the battle and give equally to the men who protected the baggage, says nobody's going to listen to you. It doesn't matter whether you went to the front lines or whether you stayed with the baggage. Everybody gets paid the same. And then we saw in Psalm 68 that the exact same statement is made of this female army. And it's definitely female. When you read it in Hebrew, there is a female army being referred to. You know, it's a great host. She who proclaims the good news is a great army. But then it says, she 
who stays at home will divide the spoil. So the implication is the same as what David was saying is we'll we're going to send people out with the good news. But if you're staying home with your children, you're nurturing your children, you're building your home, you share and share alike in whatever loot there might be. I don't know what the loot would be to proclaiming the good news, but you're going to share in the word the same as as those who are out there doing the hand-in-hand combat, should there be that, of, of preaching the gospel. There's no difference. And so as you go through scripture, you find passages like that where we tend to notice the, the masculine examples of things. And because there aren't so many feminine examples of those same things, sometimes when we do read them, we're not expecting to see them. So we just read right through them. We don't really make that connection between what King David said and then what was said in Psalm 68. We don't always put Abraham and Sarah's blessings side by side to see how close they are. And so in this case, we have an opportunity to take the blessings of the 12 sons and Deuteronomy and compare them to the blessings on this Proverbs 31 woman and see how similar they are. They're they're really like reading two versions of the same thing. What do we know about Proverbs 31? We know that the book of Proverbs is a parable of the Holy Spirit. It's a parable of the Holy Spirit. That's why I say, don't, don't, ladies, don't put that much pressure on yourself. You can't do everything in Psalm 31. Or if you could, you know, <laughs> you're quite a woman. But it's a parable of the Holy Spirit. And it's personified as a woman, just like other things, just like the spirit of Adonai in the book of Proverbs is personified as a woman who's crying out wisdom. She's crying out understanding and counsel and so forth. So it's the power of the Holy Spirit that is being attached to the daughters in Proverbs 31. And it is is giving a balance here. And that's why I said we don't necessarily expect to see it in the context of the blessing on the sons. But remember what we learned about the tribe of Asher when we did the lion lesson. When we did the lion lesson, we saw the, the three examples of three types of lions that were prophesied as Judah, as the lion cub, as the lion, the male lion, and then as the lioness. And we compared that to our growth in the feasts, from the one who's nursing on milk, to the grown-up lion, to the lioness who can now reproduce herself. She can now bring forth more cubs, and then she can also nurse with the milk. She starts a new cycle of learning, just like we start a new cycle of the feasts each year. We start a new cycle of scripture reading each year. So it's representing this growth to maturity, but not just growth to maturity, but reminding us that we start a new path to maturity each year in its cycle. And so that kind of takes us back to the pairs and twins passage that we've been studying in the footsteps of Messiah. If we want to listen for the footsteps of Messiah in our generation, And I don't know if ours is the last generation or if it is a last generation. Clearly, the apostles thought they were in the last days. Clearly, they were taking even Yeshua's statements that way, that it was right there. And technically, if you look in the rabbinic literature, we are in the days of Messiah. The last 2,000 years have been the days of Messiah. They've got it sectioned off into three sections. So they weren't wrong. We are in the days of Messiah right now, but we are looking for his return. So as we're listening for his footsteps on the mountains, we want to learn to tune our ears so that we'll know when those footsteps approach 
what it should sound like. Well, one of the things we can refer to as we're tuning our ears is go back to Acts chapter 2. Remember, Yeshua has just ascended, told the, the disciples, do not leave Jerusalem until Shavuot, keep the commandment. It's something very important is going to happen. And one of the most fascinating things about the whole Acts chapter 2 incident is the scripture that Peter chose to first explain it. He says, this is what the prophet Yoel spoke about. I will pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters, on your male and your female servants. There was something about what happened there in the house, which we take to be the temple. It's a, it's a metaphor for the temple. They were probably gathered around the area of Solomon's porch, which is where Yeshua and his disciples liked to hang out when he was teaching. And the numbers that were converted tells us that they were not in an upper room. They had moved from, you know, the, the setting has changed from chapter one to chapter two. Uh, but they're still in one heart. They're, they're still of one accord as they're praying at the Feast of Shavuot. And of course, the cloven tongues of fire, Fa, which they would, I'm sure, have had the, the formation of a Hebrew letter Sheen, which stands for fire. And it is a cloven tongue of fire when you look at it, the, the letter itself. So Peter thought the twins and the pairs were an important thing to reference. If you want to know what's happening, he said, if, if you want to understand why this gospel is being proclaimed to you in your own tongue, then you need to discern your time. And the time that it is, he says, the time for the spirit to be poured out on the sons and the daughters, the male and the female servants. It's time for the, the twins and pairs to be recognized for their purposes. That male and female, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I think this, we can attribute much of our current confusion on gender to this very phenomenon. Because when the spirit is trying to do something holy, and pure and fulfill prophecy, then the confusion of the adversary always comes in alongside it. It will always bring something in alongside it that is a distraction, and it will actually hold some element, some tiny element of the truth in it. And there is a tiny element of truth. It's that, you know, like Paul was telling the Corinthians, there's male things, there's female things, but they're both prophesying of something. The man, by his head, he is prophesying of the restoration of the kingdom of heaven on earth. The woman, with her head, is prophesying of the restoration of the rule of mankind under King Yeshua on earth. They're, they're representing two different things. And you need both of those things in the congregation. That's why he says, if you're going to pray or prophesy in public, do it this way. Have, ladies, have your head covered this way. Men, you shouldn't have anything hanging down over your heads like a woman. You have to read that back into the Greek to understand what he's saying. He's not saying don't wear a head cover, men. You probably should be wearing a head cover if you're going to pray or prophesy publicly. Just like the priests, the Levites, they wouldn't go into the temple precincts with their heads uncovered. That, that, was, that put you under suspicion of sin. When your head was uncovered, it, it was a sign of, oh my goodness, you know, they might have leprosy. We have to uncover their head till there's a diagnosis made here. Now, we live in a different time period. We do. So we, we have to kind of look to that time period and say, okay, what does it mean today? But in the time at which Paul is writing, men did. They would have something on their heads when they, when they went into a holy precinct. They just wouldn't wear a head covering like a woman, which is what he's telling the Corinthians. Don't wear something hanging down on your head. That's a feminine. So you do have to look at the culture. What says feminine? Something hanging down on your head. 
be masculine. Women, be feminine. He's saying, you know, wear the feminine head covering because it's your job to prophesy in the congregation of the restoration of mankind, the restoration of that rule on earth as it was originally intended. Well, the male over here is prophesying of the restoration of Adonai's rule on earth. You are prophesying of the restoration of mankind's rule over the earth, that it was originally conceived as a partnership. And so it takes both of you to prophesy of this partnership of heaven and earth. So the, the twins and the pairs go way back, is what Peter's saying. This is a sign of that Yeshua is restoring all things. He, he didn't come to keep us in a curse. He didn't come to put us in a curse. He came to restore us from the curse. And so part of that process was restoring this concept of the twins and the pairs of this, because they were both created to rule over the creation. It wasn't that he was to rule and she wasn't. It, it, we have to read the text. They were to rule together over the creation. And so this was a restoration of that aspect that was distorted, diminished, all things done to it when we fell out of the garden. And, you sh- and uh, Peter is saying, Yeshua came to guide us back, to prepare us to go back into the garden and to take upon ourselves the roles that we were created to have. And in the congregation, there's no better place than to begin rehearsing the restoration of those roles of a royal priesthood. And so, like I said, when you see the women mentioned, clearly it's not going to be as frequently. What we can't deny is the examples are there. And it's just like spirit things. We tend not to pay attention to spirit things. And we look at the natural things and we say sports are more real than spiritual things. Government, politics are more real than spiritual things. Games are more real than spiritual things. Head knowledge is more real than spiritual things. The medical system is more real than spiritual things. But in the realm that we are designated to, that we are being restored to, that's not the truth. The spirit is every bit as real in that realm as the natural things, that which can be observed with the natural eye, the natural ear, the natural touch. The spirit will once again uh, carry the weight of authority that it used to. Because we can't observe the spirit very easily, we tend to look over it. And so I think that's often the pattern when we look at women in scripture, when we see, well, their, their examples are much fewer, but the power of the spirit that's attached to prophetesses like Sarah or Deborah or Hulda or Miriam, yes, not so much in our natural minds, in our natural understanding, but very much in our spiritual understanding. We do bear witness to them. And so from that, you know, and I want to pull now out of this idea that the blessing on Asher was the blessing of daughters. Said he will be blessed from sons. He will be blessed from sons. Well, what do we know? Eve was taken from Adam and she was created to be a blessing to him. What does the proverb say? He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And he brings down favor from heaven. His his prayers become more efficient. That's what the proverb says. His prayers actually become more efficient when he's married because it's part of the pattern. And so, yes, it was the 
the priestly system male it was. Women had a share in the sacrifices. They could eat the sacrifices because of their relationship to the priests or the Levites. But we also see that even though we barely see any mention of it, it's like we're supposed to know this was happening. Uh, Exodus 38, 8. It says, he made the labor of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, because we don't have any more information than that, we tend to just read through it like, well, they didn't tell me much. What were they doing? What were they serving? How were they serving? I would love to know the answers to that. But scripture, when it's talking about spiritual things, often it will obscure. And so the only other place I can find anything matching this other than the Gospels is going to be 1 Samuel 2.22. It says, now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Well, again, I want to know what were these women doing at the door of the tabernacle of meeting? There was evidently a whole cadre of women that routinely served at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And we're told absolutely nothing about what they were doing until we reach the gospels until we reach the Gospels. Then finally, we get a little bit of insight as to what these women who served did. We know exactly what the Levites were doing. We know exactly what the priests were doing. It's recorded in great detail. But what were these women doing? And did the father consider it important? He must have because bad things happened to Ailey's son, taking advantage of the women. Bad things happened to them. And then something bad happened to Ailey because he wouldn't discipline them. He wouldn't rebuke them. He would not bring them to account for this behavior toward the women who were assembling at the Mishkan to serve. So here's the passage that we're working with, the blessing on Asher, which is Deuteronomy 33, 22. Of Asher, he said, may Asher be blessed in, I believe this is, uh, it might be in ASB, with sons, which is Mibanim, he will be pleasing to his brothers and immerse his foot in oil. Your locks are iron and copper, and the days of your old age will be like the days of your youth. And as Uncleos is translating this, remember at the time of Yeshua, they spoke Aramaic. And so often a synagogue would have a translator who, if they didn't understand the Hebrew, he could translate it into Aramaic. And often in that translation, Uncleos would do what he could to clarify the the statement. And so as Ankylos is translating into Aramaic, which then we have to take back to English, his explanation is the blessing of Asher will be from the blessings of the sons. It will be from the blessings of the sons. It was associated with a blessing on daughters. Again, it, it takes you back to Adam and Eve, how Eve was taken from Adam, that that blessing was taken from Adam. It's a reflection in the twins and the pairs, that, that sort of idea. And the, according to this Jewish viewpoint, the blessing on a share is the ability of the sons to promote ideals of the Torah to his brothers. And if we take Uncleos and, and some other commentators' ideas about this, it might also be the ability of the daughters to promote the living Torah to the brothers. And like I say, it's not until we get into the Gospels that we find out what women might have been doing in the temple or the tabernacle area. Like I say, the, it's the, the Torah 
And the prophets assume we know that something is going on, but we don't know what's going on. We have to look in other places to figure out what was happening here. Well, we know that a lady named Anna or Hannah, and it's interesting, there's just a strange intersection here too. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but if you remember, there was another Hannah and Ailey walked up on her praying and he thought she was drunk because she was just moving her lips, but she was praying for a son. She's praying for children and he blessed her and sent her away. And that child was Samuel. And Samuel is going to step in as the spiritual leader later because of this situation with Ailey and his sons. Exactly. So Hannah pops up in this story many years back, or or her name does, so that we can also say about her that in Judaism, the, the method of the daily prayer is attributed to Hannah when she was praying in the tabernacle and she was just moving her lips. She couldn't really be heard to the point they thought she was drunk. Well, that's how you say the Shemoni Esrei. You just say it barely loud enough to kind of hear yourself. The point is not for other people to hear you. Uh, now, in a synagogue, they'll have a cantor that you can follow along with, but she is the model of prayer. Well, there's another lady named Hannah or Anna, and this is in Luke 2, 36 through 38. And I think this explains to us exactly what those women were doing, not just in the tabernacle, but later in the temple as well. It says, there was a prophetess, Hannah, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And remember, the the daughters of Asher, from the tribe of Asher, they were highly sought after by both priests and kings. Priests and kings. They weren't just beautiful. They were full of the spirit because they say it was because the olive trees that grew in the, the portion of Asher, like the wise woman of Tekoa, they were seen as very wise and full of the spirit as represented by the, the blessing of oil on Asher of oils associated with the spirit and the menorah. So it says she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think that answers our question. Well, who were these women? What were they doing at the door of the tabernacle? Or the, you know, it, it just tell us more, tell us more. Well, this is the more. This explains exactly what uh, women would be doing who were serving in the temple. The text tells us that she had been married, she was a widow, and she's already old. And that helps us think of the blessing on our share. You know, there's some blessings of old age embedded into the tribe of Asher. She's 84 years old, which is old for back then. And apparently, if she's had children, she's already brought them up. And she must have the means at this point. And so she devotes herself to fasting and prayer night and day. And she's one of the two that Yeshua is presented to. Remember, there was a, a priest named Shimon that Yeshua is presented to. And then her parents find Hannah. Why did they know to look for Hannah? But she probably had a reputation. She was probably one of these people who, when they pray, things get answered. Because remember, Yeshua said some things come out only by prayer and fasting. 
there were things he could do that the disciples couldn't do because he had a habit of prayer and fasting. Hannah was working on that template. There were probably answers to her prayers. Remember, it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It has to be effectual and it has to be fervent. When you fast, there's a fervency in your prayer. It says, I mean business. Uh, I'm not mumbling out a prayer as I cram cookies in the side of my mouth. I'm serious about this petition that I'm bringing to you. And this is what she does. She serves night and day in the temple with fasting and prayer. She's looked up to as a, a prayer warrior, an intercessor. She's an important witness. And this is at a time when wi- women were given no credibility in the court. You couldn't take a woman's word in a, in a court. It, it, like women and slaves were in the same category. And children. <laughs> Minority children, slaves, and women. They could not give testimony in court. But Hannah, what does she do? She starts giving testimony. Once she has borne witness to Yeshua, it says she continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So it didn't matter what kind of laws they wrote, writing women out of the the legal process. The Holy One of Israel wrote her in. He wrote her into the Bible, even. But notice it says she's to those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She didn't tell just anybody, apparently. She was very selective. She (laughs) apparently didn't suffer fools. She had a a particular type of person that she related to. If you were serious about your spiritual life, probably Hannah was the one that you would want to know, to go to, to listen to. If you weren't serious about your spiritual life, it doesn't sound like she would waste time with you. And I've known people like that. Not a bad thing. We need more of that <laughs> because we less we need less playing with the word. We need less playing with our spiritual lives. So we see that the blessing upon Asher is fulfilled in Hannah. She is blessed to see her anointed king. Remember the blessing upon Asher is oil. May he dip his foot in oil. And then she begins proclaiming this idea ideal, which is what the rabbis say was characteristic of Asher, that Asher knew how to proclaim these ideals, these virtuous ideals of prophecy and the word to their brothers and sisters, to those who are looking for redemption. It's like she dipped her foot in the oil of Yeshua's anointing and then shared it. And she's already 84 years old. I would love to know how much longer she proclaimed in her old age. But the blessing says, and the days of your old age will be like the days of your youth. It sounds like nothing changed with Hannah. Even though she was 84, she had always been a righteous woman, and she was a righteous woman till the day she died. You know, talk about a pillar in the temple. She was one of those pillars in the temple. Uh, what did he say? Uh, he will go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Well, what was she proclaiming? The redemption of Jerusalem, the name of the city of my God, the name, the reputation of the city, the prophecies of the city. So yes, she is a pillar in the temple. She doesn't go out from the temple. She's bearing this blessing of of oil, of anointing, bearing witness to our king, right? So here's our exercise. We'll stop right there for today. And this is where you're invited Uh, to find your Bible, to be turned there to Deuteronomy 33. Have your pencil and paper if you need it. 
And we're going to compare the blessings on Israel's sons to Proverbs 31. And we're going we're gonna to slip down to verse 10 in Proverbs 31, because that's where the an excellent wife who can find, remember, uh, the tribe of Asher is the blessing from sons. So we've got the blessings on the sons here in Deuteronomy 33. Now, as we go to Proverbs 31, we are going to see how there is blessing from sons upon the daughter. All right, so let's start. Um, let me get flipped back here. Let's flip down to chapter 33, verse 6. And which version of the, I don't know which version this is. Yes, this is JPS. Okay, so yours might be a little bit different. And it says, this of Judah. In fact, let me share, if I can, let me see if I can do it. And it might be easier for you to see it. If I let you look at a chart, maybe that'll be easier. All right, if that helps. Because now you've got Deuteronomy 33 on the left. You've got the verse number. You've got the specific points of the blessing there. You got an example. And then as you go over to the right-hand column, you can see Proverbs 31. And there I've given you the verses in Proverbs 31. So if you want to go back later, we're not going to find everything. That's the great thing about having a bunch of people look at one section of scripture. They'll find way more stuff than one person can find. So this might be fun to do with your Bible study with your kids or something. Uh, but let's look here at verse 6. It's very short for Reuven. It says, may Reuven live and not die, though few be his numbers. That might be a little bit different than probably the, the version I was using there. But we can see that when we go over here to the Proverbs 31 woman, what do we know? Well, for Reuven, may he live and not die, right? Uh, so we could take that to be a long life. Now, when you say a long life in scripture, it might literally be a long life in the natural realm. But uh, like the uh, certain uh, commandments that come with a blessing, like uh, honor your father and mother so that your days will be long on the earth. Well, there's a natural mother and father. And if you honor them, odds are, if you follow their advice and they're righteous people, you will have long life on the earth. But your father and your mother, what about the Holy One of Israel? He's your creator. He's the one who gave life to you. If you honor him, the days of your long life are eternal. Long meaning eternal. So there's two ways, there's two layers of looking at, at long life. One, yes, a natural life. The other being eternal life. Right. So when we see um, may Reuven live and not die, the implication there is eternal life. That's the spiritual application of it. It says, though, few be his numbers. Right. So here's what it says about um, the, the wife in Proverbs. It says, uh, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. All the days of her life. If we ask a rabbi, he might say that phrase also means all the days of Messiah. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? All the days of her life. So not just the natural life, 
but the days of Messiah and even the days of the world to come. So her husband, if, if this is a parable of the Holy Spirit, and we know that it is, then who is her husband? Well, again, as, as you're looking at Israel, filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit and the bride say come. They're seen as one thing. Is it the Spirit or is it the bride? Yes. Yes. Remember the twins and the pairs. And so we have Yeshua. And we have the bride, Israel. We have the Proverbs 31 woman filled with the Holy Spirit saying, come to the bridegroom. And what does she do? She does good all the days of her life to her bridegroom. Not just during the days of Messiah, but the life of the world to come. Uh, it says in verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. I think that's based on a, a version that I had that talks about um, where Reuven would be counted, let him be counted. Uh, and that's kind of the problem when you do this with different versions, you might not pick up something that's that's getting you closer back into the, the Hebrew. And so being included there is the theme. And even though there's not much said about Reuven at all, Number one, he's he's mentioned first, which is an honor. Um, these tribes will be switched around based on the context. What is the message that's being portrayed? You might see them switched around some. It's not to diminish any other tribe, but it's to, to show you the significance of that particular placement. So in this particular placement, Reuven, even though he messed up by moving Jacob's bed, He's still honored as the firstborn in these blessings by Moses, uh, even being placed ahead of Judah in this particular uh, list of blessings. And so the theme then is don't forget Reuven. Make sure that he's included. Make sure that he's counted among his brothers. And this is message of Proverbs 31, um, that it's a message of inclusion, right? There's going to be joy for the last day uh, because her husband is going to be counted among the elders. You say, well, where does that happen? Well, in Revelation, if you remember, they set up thrones for judgment. And we know that Yeshua is also set up on a throne. Okay, so that'll give you a good start on that one. Let's go to the next blessing. Let's go to Judah. It says, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and restore him to his people. Though his own hands strive for him, help him against his foes. All right, so elements here, the voice of Judah, return or restoration, hands fighting because of a grievance, and having help against his enemies. And, and the hands striving for him against his foes. The implication there is that fighting for the sake of righteousness, fighting for the sake of righteousness. All right. So let's go back to our Proverbs 31, to our wife here. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life, clearly making those choices for good versus evil, that there will be striving. It has to come with striving if you're going to overcome evil. It says she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in the light. What does she do? She works with her hands. What does Judah do? He works with his hands. 
14. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. This is seen as a, a way of saying the food, remember, is the doctrine. The, the bread is the food. It's the word. She brings her word from afar. What does that mean? It means that she is able to collect all sorts of insights into the word. And if you know that about Jewish scholarship, they have scholars from all over the world. And they bring the, the collections of those insights into the word, just like the Proverbs 31 woman. Let's see. I'd love to say something there about the wool and the flax, but, but we'll press on because I know we won't make it through all of them. Verse 17, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong, right? This again relates back to Judah. His hands have to fight over the grievance. What is she doing? She's strengthening her hands. Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She's still working with her hands. She's very busy. Has something to know about her. She's very busy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. So the the insight here is that snow represents judgment. It goes back to a verse in Job where he says he's reserved storehouses of snow against the day of judgment. Snow, hail, frozen water is seen as. Um, not just coming from the north, but also is damaging, part of punishment, part of judgment. And it says she's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Scarlet has a couple of implications there. Scarlet can mean a redemption price. It was part of the colors of the, the tabernacle and the temple, but it also represents redemption. It represents redemption. And so because her house is covered in redemption, because her house is tabernacled, we might say, because it talks about how she spins the wool and the flax, very similar to the way that the tabernacle was spun by the wise women in the wilderness. She's not concerned of judgment because she's in the her household is in the tabernacle. They're covered in the scarlet. They're covered in the redemption price. They and, and it's that particular color is seen as warming too. Twenty one. Anything else there? We got that one. 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. What are we supposed to hear? The voice of Judah. She's supposed to be heard just as Judah's voice is going to be heard. Her Torah says literally the Torah of kindness is on her tongue. So just like Hannah, we're supposed to listen to her proclaim the gospel of Yeshua. Uh, 26, we got that one. 30 through 31. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Well, what does Judah's name mean? Praise, right? Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Well, again here, her deeds and her fruits are going to return to her. What has she been doing? She has been proclaiming not just through the spirit, not just through Yerat Adonai or the fear of Adonai that it specifically mentions, but remember her food. She's teaching doctrine. She's supplying the household with doctrine, good doctrine. And it says, because of this, you need to give her the fruit of her hands. Because if we are teaching the Torah, if we are teaching the word, then it should be yielding fruit. And it says this work that she has put in to cover her household with the word, give her the fruit of that. 
she's supposed to be praised for this. And that was what was said of Judah. It was a, his name was a matter of praise. The Torah of kindness was on her tongue. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.